The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn to God's Word again this morning, and it's a privilege to do so as it always is, and we're returning again to 1 Thessalonians in this morning, chapter 2. As you're maybe turning in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2, just a a brief reminder that so far, uh, Paul has been thanking God for the Thessalonian Christians. He's he's thanked them for the genuine fruits of faith that he's seen in their lives, and he's thanked them for the pattern of discipleship and evangelism and true conversion that he's seen in them that's led the gospel to go out throughout Thessalonica and the surrounding area. Now as we move to chapter 2, Paul's going to turn his focus uh, onto his own ministry. Remember, if you will, that Paul was forced to leave Thessalonica almost immediately after he first proclaimed the gospel and people turned to him in faith. There was a mob that attacked Jason's house where he and the others were staying and, and so he quickly fled Thessalonica. And it seems that Paul's enemies were using this fact that he had fled so quickly against him to suggest, see, Paul didn't care about you. As soon as anything got tough, he fled and left you alone. We're we're in a a significant election year, and so we're very well familiar with the fact that a candidate can just as easily focus on himself, or he can take his time smearing others. And this is Paul's enemies in in an all-out smear campaign to undermine the gospel. And so Paul, in the beginning of First Thessalonians 2, moves to respond to their accusations and defend the nature of his ministry. So that's the context. Would you read with me now First Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12? For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness— Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God 
who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words that you inspired in Paul's hand and that your spirit now continues to work through in our lives. We pray that you would do that for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the first century AD, when Paul was writing, Christianity would not have been the only context where you would have a traveling preacher or teacher. There were all sorts of traveling teachers and preachers, and unfortunately, many of them were not overly sincere. They would go from city to city teaching a new philosophy and trying to gain a following, and many of them were self-seeking scammers who had nothing of substance to offer, but were looking for a following or attention or money or some other benefit. And so as Paul's critics try to cast him in the same mold, Paul begins his defense in these first two verses of of chapter two uh, by appealing to things to justify the integrity of his ministry. Notice how in those verses, and in fact all through this passage, Paul notes that he acted openly before everyone. In fact, six times in these 12 verses, Paul uses phrases like, as you know, you are witnesses, you remember. He also uses the terms, God is witness. Everything he did, the Thessalonians can testify to and remember because he did it openly. There's no, no backroom control stations hiding his real intentions here. So Paul reminds the Thessalonians of what they know, how he acted openly before them. Paul also notes that the Thessalonians uh, can remember his sufferings, both in Philippi as well as in Thessalonica. He had boldness to declare the gospel, even knowing that he would suffer for it. And so right off the bat in these first two verses, Paul is saying, I acted openly before you and I did it in the face of suffering, knowing I would suffer. That is not the pattern of a charlatan who's just looking for some quick gain. Those are overarching uh, things, proofs that Paul gives of his integrity. But Paul spends the bulk of his time in this passage describing the nature of his ministry and his actions toward the Thessalonians. And he does so using three roles or three analogies that every reader would have been familiar with. He compares his ministry to that of a steward, a mother, and a father. And as Paul works through these roles, defending his ministry, he sets both the the standard for faithful gospel ministry that we should look for in our churches, as well as the standard that we should imitate ourselves as we care for one another. So let's, let's look through these three roles and see the nature of Paul's ministry. And let's look at verses three and four to begin with, as we see his ministry is that of a steward. A steward is probably the role that we're least familiar with of the three here in the 21st century. But a steward would be someone who was given a particular job to do. He was entrusted with a certain task on someone else's behalf. Like, like a man who would be sent by a king to represent him in another country. Or, or maybe a man who was entrusted with the care of an estate. He was in charge of taking care of the grounds and, and caring for someone else's property on their behalf. And here, Paul says in these verses that his ministry does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Rather, he arrived in Thessalonica to preach the gospel for one reason, because God had entrusted him with the gospel. And then he had assigned him the task of going to the Gentile world to preach that gospel faithfully and accurately 
to anyone who would listen. Paul uses language like this all through his letters, in fact. The idea that he would be entrusted with the gospel, that he would be a steward of the mysteries of God, as he says in 2 Corinthians. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, when he says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Over and over in multiple books, Paul uses these languages, entrusted to us. We're ambassadors. We're a steward of the mysteries of God. That's who Paul is. And by highlighting his ministry as that of a steward, Paul scoffs at the idea that his missionary journeys full of suffering would just be a cooked up message to deceive and gain followers. It's quite the opposite, he said. Far from looking to please man, he says in verse 4, if I am a steward, my job is not to please man, but to please God. In fact, pleasing man wasn't even on his radar. Paul's one job was to please God, who had approved him for this task, had entrusted the gospel to him, and who is now testing his heart. Think few things strike so close to the heart of a preacher than the reminder that we are to speak to please God alone and not man. It's so easy in the selfishness of our hearts to to want to preach in a way that is commended by others or that is that is pleasing to others and, and we fear other people's criticism. I've read the story of one old Scottish preacher, Roland Hill, who, who responded for, to this temptation in a way that, that had to be shocking in the moment. He had preached a wonderful sermon, and as he came out of the pulpit, a woman rushed up to him right away to, to thank him for his sermon. And on her first words of praise, he stopped her and said, that's just what the devil told me when I finished too. And, and his, this is no criticism of a, commending a good sermon, but I think it strikes at the heart of, of how we as men yearn for one another's praise and we know the temptation that that is. Perhaps nothing threatens the church today more than the pressure that churches and pastors feel to preach a gospel and a doctrine that is not offensive to other people. We long for others to accept Christ. Yes, But the subtle temptation is to preach the gospel in a way that is attractive to them. And as we seek to do that, we can slip in to preaching a gospel that is no longer the gospel of God. But the pressure is not just on preachers, it's not just on churches. Every single one of us faces this same question, don't we? The same question on a daily basis. The central penetrating question. Are my words, are my attitudes, are my actions motivated by my desire to please God or to please others? When I think of this question, I think of Proverbs 29, 25, which reinforces the same question, saying, the fear of man lays a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. As I thought about this question that I could ask myself on a daily basis, am I doing this to please God or to please others? I started to make a list of the the sins that are maybe most tempting to us in this area, ways that maybe we are most likely to seek man's praise rather than God's pleasure. And my list included things like obeying God or doing what seems righteous because we know that's what others will approve rather than because of a heart sincerely convicted by the gospel. Or we join in gossip wanting to add to the juicy conversation and not wanting to stick our necks out and suggest to people that perhaps we shouldn't be having this conversation. We may exaggerate 
or lie or at least fail to tell the truth because of what others might think of us. Sometimes, of course, that's just tact and wisdom, but many times we may be seeking to please others rather than God. You could add other things to this list, but this penetrating question for us is, are we seeking to please God or others? And if we do seek to please God, this is so liberating. This is not a burden. It frees us because the burden to meet expectations of others is lifted when we focus on God alone and not man. And nothing cuts the legs out from under temptation, quite like our heart's commitment to please God, not man. A seminary professor, Greg Beal, put it this way. He said, when we want to please God, concerns for pleasing the world do not affect us as much anymore. This is such a comforting and encouraging truth for us. Paul's ministry, he was aimed at pleasing God because God had entrusted him with the gospel as a steward. And Paul knew that it was God who tested his heart. That's the first role Paul compares his ministry to as he looks at the nature of what he was doing as an apostle of Christ. Well, next look at verses 5 through 8. We move on next to his second analogy, and that is of a mother with her children. Just as before, Paul begins by saying what his ministry is not. He did not come with words of flattery, nor with a hidden agenda for greed, nor to seek glory from others, even though as an apostle he could have laid demands on them. If you ask yourself, well, what's the common thread between flattery, greed, and seeking glory from others? The common thread is that they're all ways of using others to get something for myself, for my own benefit. And Paul says, quite to the contrary, he was gentle among the Thessalonians, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This has to be one of the more vivid analogies we can all relate to. What is it like for a nursing mother to take care of her own child? Or just think of the routine of a young mother. She sleeps in one to three hour integrals for months on end, if she's lucky on the higher end, perhaps. But even wake, after waking up several times in the middle of the night to feed her baby, even her whole day, her schedule, is shaped by that of her child. You know, a friend calls up and says, hey, do you want to go for a walk at 10 a.m.? And she says, well, sorry, my baby has to nap then. And when it wakes up, I have to feed her. So even her daily schedule is shaped in every way around her child. And of course, it doesn't get any better when the children get older. A mother's life is still shaped around that of her children. Some of you would be uh, familiar with the Greek uh, mythology story of Sisyphus, who was condemned by the gods to spend all eternity rolling a rock up to the top of a hill, only to watch it roll back down again, and he had to go back down and push it up again in this repetitive pattern for all eternity. Well, I think the closest thing to the story of Sisyphus is the life of a mother, She does her laundry so the kids can wear it and get it dirty so she can do the laundry again. She cleans up the dishes so she can make a meal and put it back on the dishes so that she can wash them again. Why does a mother go through all of this day after day? It's because she loves her children. And that's what Paul is saying, that the whole pattern of his life, the schedule of his life was shaped based on this one truth, that he loved the Thessalonians. And so he says there in verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. He was willing to go through suffering. He was willing to undergo persecution 
He was willing to face false accusation. He was willing to change his schedule. He was willing to work on the side, even though he wouldn't have had to do that as an apostle in order to avoid being a burden. He was willing to do all of this in order to preach the gospel because the Thessalonians were very dear to him. And once again, in the same way, a faithful minister of the gospel should be ready to pour out his life because of his sincere love for God's people that he's called to minister to. But once again, of course, this is not a command just for pastors. This passage is not just uh, describing what a, a minister should look like. We should look for this description in our church leaders, yes, but it should characterize every Christian as well in our care for one another as the church. Here we find the mark of a true godly community, a group of people that isn't together just because they think alike, but because they are shaped by their love for one another, a love that is like what Christ showed to us. As Paul's example reminds us, love is primarily about dying to myself, about sacrificing myself in order to care for one another. Paul Miller puts it this way. He says, in order for love to come alive, it needs to be incarnated. It needs to be lived out in real people's lives. We need to experience the weight of someone else's life. That is what love is. Paul Miller says, death is ever present in the good work of love. So is life, of course, in joy, but the death comes first. We die to ourselves in order to love one another, and that's what brings about the life and joy of a community shaped by Christ's love. I started to think about what it would look like for a community to be shaped by this kind of love for one another. And as I thought about that, I thought about three things. I thought this type of community would be motivated by the needs of one another. This community would be intentional about noticing the needs of those in their church and desiring to meet them. And they would desire to meet them not because they want to be the superhero. They would desire to meet them not because they're labeled as a helper on the Enneagram personality test. They would desire to meet these needs because their brothers and sisters in Christ are very dear to them. So they'd be shaped by helping one another in their needs. Second, people would alter or orient the pattern of their lives in order to serve one another. This isn't meant to be an impossible burden. Of course, many of us are actual fathers and mothers who have responsibilities with our actual children, and we're not to ignore them in order to serve other people. And God gives us different levels of bandwidth at different seasons in our life. But Paul states that like a nursing mother whose life pattern is focused and shaped around her care for her children, so his life is shaped by the, pat- by the needs of those around him. True love dies to our schedule and to our wallet for the sake of one another. So a community shaped by this kind of love would be intentional about meeting the needs of others. It would alter and orient their lives around serving one another. And thirdly, its people would be motivated by a love for everyone in the church, not just those that they happened to click with. As I thought about this picture of this community, I thought about James chapter 2. James 2 warns the church against the sin of partiality, where Christians would be favorable towards some and less favorable towards others. And in James's day, showing greater attention to the rich and ignoring the poor was the greatest risk of sin in the church. Now today, it may be partiality for the rich over the poor, but it may be those of our culture over those of another culture. 
It may be those who are fun and tactful rather than those who are quiet and awkward. Maybe it's those who we perceive as normal rather than those who have disabilities. We could list all sorts of these areas where it's tempting for us to show partiality rather than a sincere love for everyone in the body of Christ. Whatever the category, God's people find all of God's people very dear to us because of Christ's love. And my prayer is that anyone who walks into Westminster Presbyterian Church would see us and experience this love of Christ in these ways, that they would look around and see us as a church being affectionately desirous of one another, both to share the gospel, but also our very lives, because we are very dear to each other. Paul was a steward. He was like a mother in his ministry. And we can look thirdly at verses 9 through 12. Verses 9 through 12, where Paul finishes by comparing his ministry to that of a father. And here we see his role as a father described in roles of of training, of exhorting, of encouraging his children in order to prepare them for who they are meant to be. You see, as he works through this, his labor and his toil, his godly example, his exhortation that they might walk worthy of the kingdom. I think perhaps historically we recognize a father's role in training his children more so than we might today. Historically, fathers often trained their sons in a particular trade. Their trade was adopted from their father's training. If you think of medieval times, a father's family crest would often summarize the the virtues or the character that the members of their family were supposed to embody. I remember when I was young, some friends of ours went on a a trip to England and they brought back a a little refrigerator magnet with the Walker family crest on it, with the Walker family motto, Anesta quam magna, how great are honorable deeds. Now there's an inspiring crest and, and quote. I was very inspired and until I found out that I have hardly a sliver of English blood in me. My ancestors are German and we were Volkers. And uh, our ancestors had to change their name to Walker when they immigrated to America because no one could pronounce it correctly. And I'm hopeful that the Volkers also thought that honorable deeds were great. But uh, you see the role of a family crest. When you have that attached to your name, it gives you an example and, 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 and to, to train and give you, a, give you a picture of what to strive for what a father's family crest would do. And that's what the goal of Paul's fatherly ministry was as well, to train, to set an example, uh, to exhort them in who they were to be as followers of Christ. And so you can begin to see that specific description. In verses 9 and 10, Paul sets an example of godliness for the Thessalonians, both by his labor and toil, but also by his holy, righteous, and blameless conduct. This triad of holy, righteous, and blameless summarizes both a life dedicated to God through its holiness being set apart for God, its righteousness, which describes our actions towards one another in obedience to God's law, and blameless describes a life and its reputation amongst those who are outside. They're not completely distinct. These three words all work together to summarize a life that is dedicated to God in its holiness. And while none of these words imply perfection at all times, it does describe a life characterized by love for God and obedience to him. And when I read this description that Paul sets 
He says that we were holy and righteous and blameless. It reminds me of of the words of the Scottish pastor, John Murray McShane. Some of you will recognize his name from the Bible reading plan that many still use to read through the Bible in a year. But he, he is well known for saying, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Why would he say that as a Christian leader? Because only a message brought with integrity is credible. And a concrete example of holiness is far more encouraging and beneficial for a community than hypothetical descriptions. Paul sets this concrete life of holiness to encourage the Thessalonians. In addition to his example, though, Paul goes on in verses 10 and 11 to say that he also exhorted and encouraged and charged his children to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls them into his own kingdom and glory. And here you see Paul exercising the full range of efforts to to train and and encourage the Thessalonians towards godliness. When I read these these words uh, of exhort, encourage, charge, the, the range of Greek words used there could include exhorting, entreating, summoning, encouraging, comforting, solemnly charging, admonishing. All of those are captured with this range of words. And, and I thought, I, I had this picture in my mind as I, as I envisioned this of a parent coming alongside their teen who had enrolled in a difficult honors course in high school. And as they went through this difficult honors course, at times the student is, is discouraged. At, at times they feel like giving up. And, and a parent uses all of these different ways to at one time comfort and encourage and come along and build them up. At another time, perhaps warn them or admonish them if they see procrastination setting in. At other times, summoning them and setting before them the reward. And all these things are used to, to motivate this student towards success in their class. And that's the role Paul is playing as a father here, as he exhorts and encourages and challenges the Thessalonian believers. And what's the goal? What's the goal he's encouraging them towards? He's encouraging them that they might walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. One commentator calls this line the crescendo of this whole passage, that we would be working towards and longing for, walking worthy of God, who has called us into his kingdom and glory. And what a glorious reminder of the joy and the privilege of the gospel, isn't it? If we have put our faith in Christ, God himself, the majestic one, has called us and welcomed us into his kingdom and into his glory. God's kingdom, of course, is nothing other than the realm where he dwells and he reigns. And so we have been called into his presence to dwell where he rules. We belong to that now, but we have an even greater hope of living in it for all eternity. I think of the words of Revelation 11.5, which reminds us that we're awaiting for the perfect arrival of this kingdom. It says, one day is coming when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet and there will be loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and forever. And we are part of that kingdom. And if we're part of that kingdom, if we've been called into that kingdom with its glory, would we not walk worthy of that privilege of being in that kingdom? I was thinking of this this week. To walk worthy of something, of course, is to live in a way that's fitting for the role that you've been given. I remember talking with an avid golf fan who told me that his life's 
dream was to be a marshal in Augusta, Georgia at the Masters Golf Tournament. You know, the guys who would hold the quiet sign along, along the course. And it's a very uh, desired and sought after position. And if you were chosen for that, you would want to do it in a worthy manner. You'd want to make sure you did it faithfully because you were chosen for something that was a, a unique privilege. You'd want to walk worthy of that job you were given. I thought of it last night as my wife was reading The Veil of Snows, a a children's novel to our our kids by Mark Halperin. And it describes a man who meets his queen in person. And he says, This was our queen, whom I loved the moment I looked upon her, for whom I would sacrifice, for whom I would die, whom I would obey. Once I had seen her from a distance upon a balcony, and that was enough to make me twice loyal. But in her presence, my life changed as did my purpose, which is what royalty are for. Isn't this what it is to meet our God, the God of the universe? In his presence, our life is changed, as is our whole purpose, because we are part of his kingdom. How much more, of course, these are stories, these are examples, but how much more would we long to walk worthy of the king of the universe himself? When I think of walking worthy of him, I think of walking in a way that honors him, walking a way that is befitting of one who is part of his kingdom, of walking in a way that demonstrates that our first allegiance is to his kingdom and his glory and not of this world. I think of the men and women who are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. We just studied Hebrews as a congregation not long ago. And so you may remember that description of those who suffered torture, mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, stoning, even being sawn in two, of whom this world was not worthy. They persevered by faith since God had provided a reward, an eternal homeland for them. But I think also of families even in our midst when I think of walking worthy of God's kingdom. I think of families whose significant financial generosity shows that they do not cling to this world but are seeking to walk worthy of God and his kingdom. I think of those who do their work or even their schoolwork, with excellence, not to build their resume, but because God has called them to do it, and they seek to honor their Lord in whatever sphere he has called them to. I think of individuals in this church who push the limits of their strength and of their age and of their schedule to volunteer in multiple ministries to be a blessing to God's people in so many ways. I think of others who commit themselves to diligent discipline and self-control to prioritize time and prayer in God's word because they long for godliness in their lives. I think of those who have contented joy in the face of disappointment, patient trust despite long-term suffering, setting aside time for examining our lives to make confession and repentance a regular habit because we long for holiness and righteousness. All of these are patterns of walking worthy of God and of his kingdom and his glory. In the end, maybe we could say this, the call to walk worthy of God and his kingdom and his glory is maybe best summarized by a passage in 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John 3, 2 and 3, where the apostle writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself because he is pure. You see this hope? We, have, we are children of the king of the universe. We are going to dwell in his presence in his kingdom forever. And whoever has that hope purifies himself now 
That is our desire, to walk worthy of him. Because we have an eternity ahead of us with him. Well, Paul's ministry is summarized by a steward, by a mother, and by a father. Paul's ministry is characterized by faithfulness to the gospel, with the goal of pleasing God and not man, by sincere love for one another like a gentle mother who cares for her children, and by godly living with exhortation and encouragement to walk worthy of God in the coming kingdom and glory. As Paul defends his ministry to the Thessalonians, describing its nature and reminding them of his faithfulness and love and exhortation, Paul sets the standard that we should be looking for in our churches and our church leaders, as well as the pattern that we should be imitating in our own lives as we seek to love one another in our congregation. Let's pray together. Father, how I thank you for this passage of Scripture. As Paul seeks to defend himself, we know he's not defending himself for his sake. He's defending his ministry for the sake of the gospel, that the Thessalonians would cling to the truth of Scripture. And this morning, as we look at this passage and its description of faithful and godly Christian ministry, I pray that we as a church would strive after this pattern and example, that we would seek to be faithful stewards of the gospel, that we would seek to please you as our God and not man, that we would seek to love one another with sincere love as Christ who has loved us, that we would seek to exhort one another, encourage one another, charge one another, that we might walk worthy of the kingdom of God for your glory. We pray this, Father, in your strength and for your sake. Amen.